Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the Neuroscience CME Journal Club. The goal of each journal club is to evaluate the latest evidence in clinical literature and translate that evidence into improvements in the care of patients. CME Outfitters LLC is the accredited provider for this Neuroscience CME continuing education activity. CME Outfitters gratefully acknowledges an independent educational grant from Cephalon Incorporated in support of this CE activity. This activity is titled Evolving Sleep-Wake Research, Implications for Improved Patient Outcomes, Part 2. Our guest host for today's activity is Dr. Thomas Roth. Dr. Roth has been the director of the Sleep Disorders and Research Center at the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan since 1978. Dr. Roth also serves as a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan School of Medicine in Ann Arbor. Dr. Roth is on the Speakers Bureau for Cephalon Incorporated, Santa Fe Aventis, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America Incorporated. Dr. Roth has also received grant support and serves as a consultant for various companies which are disclosed online at neurosciencecme.com. Today's featured author is Graciela E. Silva, PhD. Dr. Silva is Assistant Professor and Southland Border Scholar at the College of Nursing and Health Innovation at Arizona State University in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Silva's research focuses on sleep disordered breathing, asthma, and chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases. Her work also includes disease surveillance along the U.S.-Mexico border, and she is a member of the Healthy Border 2010 Writing Group. Dr. Silva has disclosed that she received grant support from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 395. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. Over the next hour, Dr. Roth and Dr. Silva will be discussing and taking questions regarding an article in Sleep titled Longitudinal Evaluation of Sleep Disordered Breathing and Sleep Symptoms with Change in Quality of Life, the Sleep Heart Health Study. At the end of this CE activity, participants should be able to assess the impact of sleep disordered breathing, sleep quality, and excessive sleepiness on physical and mental quality of life. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's Journal Club. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to uh, this edition of Neuroscience CME Journal Club. And joining me today will be Dr. Silver. Dr. Silver is a professor in the Arizona State University College of Nursing, and uh, she has recently published a paper, which I think is, is a very important paper in, in the sleep and breathing world or in the sleep community generally, and, and the paper is entitled Longitudinal Evaluation of Sleep Disorder Breathing and Sleep Systems with Changes in Quality of Life, and this is from the Sleep Heart Health Study. Uh, and this was published recently in the journal Sleep in 2009. Dr. Silva, welcome. And um, if, you know, I'd, I'd like you to sort of, you know, help us by installing the journal club off by giving us a description of, of the study you did and some of the more important results that you found. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Ross. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I will start with a description of the Sleep Heart Health Study. This um, study, study started um, way in 1995, and it's a cohort study. 
and it includes um, the baseline study included over 6,000 subjects from several different cohorts um, uh, from all over the U.S., and these subjects were 40 years of age and older. Subsequently, five years after that, there was a second uh, follow-up study, and that study included about 4,000 subjects of the original cohort. And the main purpose of the study was to look at correlations between sleep and um, cardiovascular um, effects. What we did in this study, we looked at subjects with, um, that had polysomnogram, which is a sleep study, and those subjects that subsequently had polysomnogram, and we looked at how their quality of sleep affected their quality of life. And there's um, three basic things that we looked at. We looked at the uh, RDI, which is their respiratory disturbance index, and this is a measure that is taken from the polysomnogram, or the actual measurement of the quality of sleep of the subjects. And we also uh, looked at the um, DIMS, which is the difficulty initiating and maintaining sleep, sleep and we looked at the uh, excessive daytime sleepiness. These two measurements are subjective measurements because we asked the subjects in a questionnaire um, how well they felt their sleep was, did they have uh, trouble uh, initiating or maintaining sleep, uh, did they wake up too early and couldn't go back to sleep, and also for the um, excessive daytime sleepiness, we, we use what is called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which is an uh, eight-item questionnaire, and that asks questions about how prone they are to fall asleep in different situations. Now, what we found is that after a period of five years, um, subjects um, that had worse sleep during those five years, they also had worse quality of life. And the quality of life, we measured that with the SF36, which is um, a common um, questionnaire used to measure quality of life. And we used two of those summary scale, which is the physical component scale and the mental component scale. So in those Using those uh, scales, we measured how their quality of life was affected. So for subjects we, that we measure their actual um, PSG or their RDI, we didn't detect a significant difference with quality of life. However, subjects that had insomnia or difficulty initiating and maintaining sleep they were affected with their um, their mental quality of sleep. And for subjects that had excessive daytime sleepiness, both their physical and mental quality of sleep were affected. So we think that this is important findings because it's telling us that it's not so much the time, the amount of sleep the subjects are getting, although that is important as well, but it's the perception of sleep the subjects are getting. So it's, it's 
very important that the, the subjects feel they have a restful sleep, and the sleep is very important in the in impact on quality of sleep. So those are the main um, findings from our study. Great, thank you. So you know, before you know, we we turn it over to our audience, which I'm sure they're going to have lots of questions. You know, I I, I uh, thought this was a terrific article, and I have some questions. You know, I want to ask you about some of the results you found. So one of the one of the important things in this study is 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 you know this is one of the largest, if not the largest, databases on sleep apnea, and, and certainly it is the largest database on on longitudinal evaluation of sleep apnea. And people always sort of ask about the fact that you know what happens if you don't treat a sleep apnea patient. And and let me take the definition of of of, of moderate to severe sleep apnea, which is, you know, from 15 and above, so 15 to 30 is often moderate, greater than 30 is often severe. Over the five-year period, what happened to the apneas in those patients? Um, we found that overall the, the mean RDI increased. So mean RDI was 8.1 for baseline and follow-up was 10.9. But also there's a table on the paper and shows that if we look at subjects that had an RDI greater than 30%, those increased from 5 to 8. So 5% of the subjects had an RDI greater than 30% at baseline. Right. And at follow-up, 8% had an RDI greater than 30%. So clearly in this population, there's either a greater incidence of, of, of severe sleep apnea or people with mild to moderate disease are getting severe disease. Is that a fair conclusion? That is true, yes. Great. And, and then the other thing which is, I found interesting in your study is, 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 is the prevalence of daytime sleepiness. Uh, as you point out, the, the standard measure of, uh, clinical measure of daytime sleepiness is the upward sleepiness scale. And, and I believe you found that, that, you know, I, I don't think it, you know, it changes dr dramatically, but you found that 25% of the population at the first time point had significant daytime sleepiness. Okay. And at the second time point, it's 22%. That is correct. So, so, so a couple of questions. One, you know, well, are there differences in the prevalence of daytime sleepiness among men versus women? Um, I think so, and I looked at that. We looked at women overall. Their daytime sleepiness was 21, mm -hmm. 21%, and for men it was 29 yeah. at baseline. And, and you, you know, if we speculate about that, you know, is that probably due to the, the differential prevalence of sleep apnea, or is it due to you know, maybe the nature of the exam or the test? I, I don't think it's the difference in the exam or the test because all the subjects had the same questionnaire. Mm -hmm. But as you say, it's, it's probably correlated with the um, sleep disorder breathing, which is more prevalent in men. Okay. And, and you know, one of the things I find very curious, and I, I sort of know I'm stretching it, but we went from, you know, you went from 25% of the population to 22% of the population, which is, you know, interestingly, you know, this is very consistent with, 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 with a lot of epidemiological data, but about 20% of the American population are, are profoundly sleepy, you know, sleepy of greater than 11, which means that the risk of accidents. You know, do you, you know let's say for the moment that that 25 to 22 is real, you know, what, what happens to sleepy people across time? You know, one of the things I've always been very curious is, you know, there's these data from, from Dr. Dinger's laboratory where if you sleep deprived people for a couple of weeks, they stop complaining of sleepiness. You know, do, do you think that can be, you know, an, an issue in, in your study? It, 
Yes, I, I think that that could be an issue. Um, people, some may get accustomed to being sleepy and they don't notice that much. So that probably is why we're seeing the, the 25 at baseline and 22 at the follow-up. Yeah. So, so very clearly, you know, I, I think you know the clinical message there. You know, I was wondering if you would agree is is, is the need to to sort of evaluate sleepiness and 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 what this data suggests to me for the first time is when they stop. If you've had patients who've been sleepy and they say they're not sleepy anymore, to sort of maybe probe a little deeper and look at individual items, or you know, we sometimes will ask the the wife of the patient to sort of evaluate their sleepiness. Right. Yeah. It, Dr. Silva, you know, one of the things that, 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 you know, for me, one of the major, major findings in your study was this very, very high correlation between people's quality of life as measured by the SF36 and both their insomnia and their perceived sleepiness as measured by the upward sleepiness scale. You know, lots of things affect quality of life. You know, did you see this as a, as, as, as a major contributor or is it just accounting for very little variance? Um, the, when we looked at the regression analysis, that's able to tease out the contribution from the other um, cofactors that would um, affect the um, quality of life. So when we looked at this regression analysis, uh, we can see that uh, insomnia and sleepiness are, in fact, um, driving the quality of life. We have uh, some other variables that are included in there. For example, BMI is one of the contributors, but also uh, we still have the effect from the insomnia and from the uh, excessive daytime sleepiness. Okay, so, so even controlling for other factors, you, you, you know, uh, daytime sleepiness significantly contributes to, to an impairment of quality of life in these people. Correct. We we control for age, uh, uh, BMI, smoking, uh, subjects taking pills, their coronary heart disease recovery. Okay. So all of that. So even getting rid of all of that. Now, you know, that, that that's a, that raises another question, and, 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 you know, one of the things that people are very interested in today is, is the whole issue of being overweight and, and obese. Uh, and, and what happened to weight overall in your in, in all of your subjects, and, and, and what happened to weight specifically in your obese subjects? Well, um, BMI increased over the five years. So where we had, uh, um, I think the BMI, the main uh, mean BMI was 28.7 on the baseline. Follow-up, it was 29.3. So uh, the, the BMI obviously increased. And uh, we find that subjects with... Um, the BMI was more correlated with the physical component scale and not so much with the mental component scale. And this is uh, also consistent with other studies. On, if we see on our table, subjects with a BMI greater than 30% increased from 35% on the baseline to 38% on the follow-up. So the obese subjects increased from baseline to follow-up. And, and also we saw that correlation that they were, you know, not so much with, with a mental component, but with a physical component scale. Now, one methodological question I just want to ask you. Uh, many, many of our audience are, are used, used to hearing when they talk about sleep apnea or sleep rate of breathing disorders, AHR, apnea, hypopnea, used the term RDR. Do you mean that to be in any way different? 
Um, so how did you define RDR? RDI would define as uh, the number of apneas and hypopneas. Okay. So in uh, per hour of sleep. Yeah, per hour of sleep. So it's essentially the same thing as as many people refer to as the apnea hypopnea index. It would be the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so very clearly, you 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 know, I I think these data clearly demonstrate the fact, you know, and I, I, I like your opinion on this, the fact that a Sleepiness is, is, is a major, major issue in this population, reflecting 20, 25% of the people. Do you have any senses, you know, to, to, you know, what is the contribution of the six-hour total sleep time, the contribution of severe sleep apnea? You know, do you think both, which of those contribute to daytime sleepiness more in the general population, do you believe? Um, well, I think that um, people that have the sleep disorder breathing, they will have their sleep disturbed during the night, and therefore that will subsequently, you know, manifest into uh, excessive daytime sleepiness. Um, subjects also have that insomnia will um, contribute to excessive daytime sleepiness, but from this study, I, I can't tell you which one has the most effect. That, that sort of reminds me of, of one of the things you said before, and you sort of pointed out that it's patient's perception of sleep rather than actual sleep. And, and you know, maybe in, in, in many medical disorders, the daytime sleepiness is related to fragmented sleep, which doesn't show up on the polysomnogram as much as patient's perception of, of just disturbed sleep or poor quality of sleep. Is that a reasonable hypothesis, do you think? Correct, yes. Um, I would say that uh, the subjects are more aware of what their quality of sleep was than they are of what their actual total sleep was. Now, what, what are, you know, well, you know, so, 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 you know, you sort of have a couple of very, very important findings. You have this increase in sleep disorder breathing in the general population. You have an increase in, in, in the prevalence of severe sleep apnea, you know, the, or moderate and severe sleep apnea. You have this very striking relationship between daytime sleepiness on the Epworth and quality of life. You know, what, what do you think are the clinical implications of that? In other words, we have lots of people who do clinical medicine or sleep medicine listening to this call. And what do you think the implications of these findings are? I think that the uh, primary issue here is that uh, subjects that have either chronic heart disease or respiratory diseases um, are probably not getting treatment for their quality of sleep, and that's why we are seeing these results. And um, maybe um, it needs to be stepped up a little bit. So you think there, there are clearly at-risk populations for both insomnia and daytime sleepiness? So, so would you say people with heart disease, people with lung diseases, you know, these data would suggest that they routinely need to get some clinical evaluation, not, not a laboratory study, but a, initially a clinical evaluation of their sleep-wake function and make a determination of whether they pursue it beyond that? Absolutely, and um, I think that the study is showing that with this result that their quality of sleep is not being addressed. Mm -hmm. So they probably should address in the clinical setting to improve the subject's quality of sleep. Yeah. The, the other thing which I thought was sort of interesting in your study is, is across time, both insomnia and daytime sleepiness went up as a, you know, as a percent. And what's, what's very, very interesting is the use of sleep medications went up. And I'm wondering whether people use of, of, of wake-enhancing medications, whether that's prescription medication or, or the use of caffeine went up across this period of time also. 
Well, um, what we have is at baseline, uh, 20% of the subjects were taking or said they were taking sleeping pills, and at follow-up, it was 24% of the subjects. So obviously, it, it went up. Um, don't recall that in this uh, analysis, we did the caffeine study, so um, I'll have to get back on that. Yeah, I think that'll be an interesting thing. Now, this increase in medications, were those in people, were you able to look at that specifically in people who had sleep with mild or moderate sleep related breathing disorders, or is this just in the population in general? This is the general population. I didn't break it up. We didn't break it up by uh, whether they had uh, sleep problems. Okay. Now, one of the things that, you know, I, I can't, you know, before letting you go, you know, to, to, to the audience, you know, what, one of the things that, that, that people in the field and increasingly in, 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 in the general public health area are, are concerned about is, is daytime sleepiness associated with, with lack of sleep. Well, you know, what you have is, um, you know, what you have is, 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 you know, a very, very large amount of data on people recorded in their own homes using their own bedtimes. It's not like going into a laboratory like, you know, our laboratory, another sleep laboratory, and we say, you know, report at this time, get out at this time. But these are people sleeping in their own home. And and, and so so one of the things I'd be very curious is is what was the, the, the polysomnographic objective measure of total sleep time in your population? The total sleep time, it was done with the polysomnogram? Yeah. So, it, it like you said, it was done in the subjects on home, so it's not... It, it's affecting minimally, and it is uh, over 3,000 subjects, so the data is very Absolutely. And we do have the total amount of sleep time. Uh, it was uh, 364 minutes on the baseline and 368 minutes on the follow-up. So, so, so it's it's really interesting. So this, it's, it's you know I mean that's an amazing you know you know I mean the, the difference of four minutes over or five minutes over six hours you know that's an amazing that's a pretty stable number and and, and it's very clear that these people are, you know and this is a huge sample and a representative sample as you said is in fact sleeping about six hours a night absolutely which, which is which is sort of a concern it is a concern and I like to mention a previous study that we did. We looked at, we asked the subjects, you know, how much they thought they were sleeping uh, on the night of the polysomnogram, and most of the people overestimated the amount of, st of time by one hour. So people don't really have an idea how much they sleep. They think they probably think they sleep more than they do, and they are actually getting less sleep. That's actually interesting. So in the general population, they seem to overestimate sleep because in the insomnia literature, they tremendously underestimate their sleep. So that's actually an interesting finding. Yes, correct. But the insomnia population is different. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah, these are uh, community subjects. Yeah, this is a random sample. So, so most people, you know, so all these studies we read where people give us their estimates of how long they've slept, so all this stuff you read in newspapers, the average American sleeps 6.9 hours, you know, this data suggests that in your other study, which you published in 2007, you know, suggests that while people tell you they sleep seven hours, they're probably sleeping closer to six hours. Correct, yes. That's very exciting. Well, listen, I, we could go on forever, but, but, I, but I think we need to um, turn it over, and I'd like to open up our, this segment of, of, of the Journal Club to uh, our general audience and, and uh, take questions from you. While we're waiting to take audience questions, I'd like to, get our audience, I'd like to let our audience know that there are additional online resources at www.neuroscience.com. 
At the conclusion of this question and answer session, you will automatically be redirected to this site. I encourage you to take advantage of this evidence-based resource. You will see Q&A box in the lower left-hand corner, and you can ask questions from there, or also uh, you can also call in to ask questions. Operator, have we given them the number for the call in yet? Yes, we have, sir. Great. Okay, so let, let me turn to the questions I have, which, are, you know, we have lots of these already coming in. Uh, so the, the, the first question is, this is, a, this is a very interesting topic. Is it, is it accurate to say that you saw a decrease in overall medical health in these patients across time? And if so, was this differential in either apnea patients or obese patients? Um, actually, we did because of the... Um <clears throat> when we saw the respiratory um, problems and the heart disease problems <clears throat> increase from um, baseline to follow-up. so But we did not look at specifically how this uh, were affected by RDI. Okay. Great. Okay, now, next question. I just got tons of these. Now, what, what is the clarification point? That I just want to clarify this. Was BMI, inc I know that, you know, the, 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 the listener wasn't clear. Did BMI increase or decrease? BMI increased from baseline to follow-up. So the mean BMI was 28.7 at baseline and 29.3 at follow-up. And how about in the people over with a BMI over 30 at baseline? They <clears throat> they also increased the percent of subjects with a BMI greater than 30%. They also increased from baseline to follow-up. So on baseline, the percent of people with a BMI greater than 30 uh, was 35%. Okay. Did you look at a, a relationship between BMI and sleep-wake disorders? No, we did not. That that has been done in other studies. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you tell us about that? Um, well, uh, those subjects that have uh, the greater BMI and also have a correlation with um, RDI that it's uh, greater than 30%. So if you look at um, RDI that's less than 5, uh, 5 to 15, and 15 to 30, and then RDI greater than 30, those um, correlations are... Um, they correlate with uh, increasing BMI. Okay. Another question, um, you know, is, is there data that highlights the validity of the upward sleepiness scale? So how, you know, so the, your measure of sleepiness with this very large number, is there data to suggest that the, the, the upward sleepiness scale is a valid measure of sleepiness? So, for example, is it related to driving ability? Is it related to sleep disorders or sleep deprivation that we know about? Um, well, the upward sleepiness scale has been widely used. So um, there are other studies that have um, validated in different populations, and um, I can't tell you um, right now which studies have specifically um, addressed uh, for each one of those uh, topics, but uh, the upward sleepiness scale uh, is widely used, so yeah. um, it, it is a valid measure. The, 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 the questioner... Also ask is you know was is it validated specifically to measure sleepiness and insomnia? Um, I think so. It is. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. In fact, there are several studies 
you know, if I can interject, you know, there's several studies which show an increase in upward sleepiness scale associated with insomnia. And equally important, they show a decrease in upward sleepiness scale associated with therapeutic interventions, be they behavioral or pharmacological. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and specifically when the uh, patients are being treated with uh, CPAP. So this is um, one of the uh, measures that they use um, pre and post evaluation after uh, they have been treated with CPAP. Here's an interesting question. I'm I'm interested in in your views on this. I think you highlight a very critical point. I see that often in our patients, they become standardized. I think they mean they they become, you know, used to their sleepiness. So so very clearly they, they they no longer you know report being sleepy. Do you see do you use sleep logs or diaries or other ways to really clue, that are clinically useful? So in other words, if patients continue to feel that you know to to fe- stop feeling that they're sleepy on a chronic basis, how do you assess their sleepiness over time? Um Dr. Roth, I'm, I'm not sure how this this would be done. I I think there's some other measures that that can be done. Um, yeah, you know, I you know, I don't have a good any any better answer than you. I I think you know one of the things that might be helpful, you know, we sometimes use in our patients if we have a suspicion that a patient is sleepy and he know you know and it, and he continues to show you know if we continue to think he's sleepy but he denies it what we often will do is ask their spouse their their significant other their husband their wife to fill out the Epworth and very often we'll find out that you know the patient will wind up you know going from an Epworth of 8 to an Epworth of I mean an Epworth of 12 to an Epworth of 8 and their you know their their wives say he went from a 12 to a 17 so like you, I don't have a very good answer, but very clearly, if you suspect that this person is becoming tolerant to that sensation, the, the use of an interview with the spouse might be a valuable thing to do. And, and you know, in extreme situations, you can actually do a, a, a multiple sleep latency test, you know, to find out exactly how sleepy they are. Um, you know, next question here. You know, and, and, and you know, and I think you can talk to the heart health system generally. Is there any data on people not available for follow-up, for example, deaths? Um, yes, we, we, there were um, several deaths on this cohort, and I believe it was um, a thousand or, or in that range. So the, there is a, um, a recent publication on the mortality on this cohort, and I think that uh, was about a month ago. So. Um, uh, I'm not. I can't remember right now the um, first author, but it, it has been evaluated. The um, they looked at the mortality on this cohort. So, I, off the top of my head, I can't tell you if the the mortality uh, was different. Oh. Yeah, it was. I, you know, I read that paper. Like you said, it came out last month. There's a significant increase in mortality associated with apnea, down to AHIs of 15. Yeah, correct. Yes, yeah. you are correct. All right, so here's another question, and there's so many of these. Uh, operator, uh, do we have any questions on the phone yet? Not this time, but I would okay. like to remind our participants that if they do have a phone question, press star to w- and one to queue up. Okay, so here's a, a question. I want to ask a basic physiological question. I'm a fa- family physician, and my patients don't come in complaining of them excessively sleepy. I have 15 minutes to ask them about smoking, cardiac history, family history, mental illness, what one or two questions would you direct me to concern about sleep disorders versus normalized tired? Sleep, you know, real sleepiness versus just normal tired. Um, 
Um, Dr. Ross, I'm not a clinician, but I think that, and um, I'll ask your opinion on this, um, if the physician doesn't have a lot of time, maybe there's a couple of questions that's related to snoring. Yeah, I, I think you're right. If, I, I think you're right. I mean, if you're interested, you know, first of all, there's this thing called a STOP questionnaire, S-T-O-P, which you can get on a website, mm-hmm. which is a very good screen for sleep apnea. Something very simple, if you're concerned about sleep sleep apnea, is just getting neck circumference, probably the best predictor. And finally, if you're interested in sleepiness per se, you know, the Airport Sleepiness Scale, which you can download from the Internet, you know, from a variety of different sources, is, you know, it takes about a minute and you get a good score an Epworth score, as you heard today, you know, scores you know higher than 11 would give you some reason for concern. And if the scores are six, seven, you don't necessarily have to pursue that. Conversely, for insomnia, there's a thing called insomnia severity index, and those are the things that might be valuable. In fact, I think you can get the Epworth on 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 the, the website for this call as well. That that would be something that the patient could be. Uh... Uh, like a simple questionnaire they could be answering while they're on the waiting room or in the examining room waiting. Absolutely. We do that all the time. I think that's a very good idea. Um, were, were any of the subjects in this, you know, a, a very, very important, you know, question, you know, for, for this study and the heart health study, were any of the people who were diagnosed were then subsequently treated? So in anybody in the, is anybody in this sample being treated? I I believe so. Uh, um, from the baseline to the follow-up, if they were uh, with severe um, sleep disorder breathing, they, they might have gotten treatment. But, again, uh, I have to probably get back to that question to find out um, what percentage of subjects. But, but, but would they be in the follow-up sample even if they were being treated? No, not okay. in the follow-up. The, those were excluded. So, so this is uh, that's actually interesting. So this is a conservative estimate of increase because if you really got bad, you got treated, and you were thrown out of the sample. Correct. Well, that's actually a very interesting point. Whoever asked that question is a great question. Um, next question: If you see patients in your office who are presenting for an annual physical and, and they are borderline obese, is it standard in your practice to evaluate cardiac risks? But should you now add eventually a sleep disorder? So if you're, if you're concerned about a patient you know, who's mildly obese, would you, well, what would you do for sleep apnea? We talked a little bit about this. Um, well, um, because of the um, sleep disorder breathing and obesity are very correlated, so uh, I would suggest that, yeah, the, the patients are also evaluated for uh, sleep disorder breathing if they are presented with um, uh, obesity. And uh, I'll also take your um, suggestion on this. No, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I, I think we routinely feel that you know you should you know a person's getting an annual physical, you should get something like an Epworth or you know in, you know find out you know ask people if they snore. I think those are minimal kinds of questions. You know, a, 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 a next question, which I think is a, is a very good question. You know, different people in different specialties have you know calibrated. So if you tell somebody that you know blood pressure changed five you know, millimeters of pressure, we know what that means. If, you, if, you, if your LDL or HDL changes X, we know what that means. The quality of life changes that you saw in this patients, how significant are those? What can we compare that to? You know, calibrate that for us. Um, quality of life in, in this uh, study was um, from the baseline to the follow-up. So these mm-hmm. are subjects comparing to each other. So right. So did their quality of life significantly decrease 
comparing to their their own quality of life. Right. So um it it is um the the means and all the the um values are consistent with other studies. So you know their their quality of life did did decrease. Right, but but this decreases this decrease would be something that should cause us to be concerned is it clinically relevant? Is it you know people always want to know is this a clinically significant decrease in quality of life, or is it a statistically significant decrease in quality of life? I mean, like you said, this is a very big sample. Is the significance here simply reflect the size of the sample, or was this a big decrease in quality of life? And and you are correct. With such a, a big sample, um, would detect minor differences just just because of the large number of subjects that are participating in the study. But I, I would call uh, attention that in our correlations with um, the um, results show that even uh, 1 or 1.5 decrease uh, points in the quality of life, which means that um, for every um, increase in your um, insomnia, or your uh, excessive daytime sleepiness, you will decrease your quality of life by such amount, which um, it shouldn't happen, and and I think that is clinically significant. Okay. Now, one of the questions that people, another question is, did you have any, you know, two questions actually they have, is did you have any family members in, in the heart health study, and, and so is is there a family basis or, you know, familial aggregation associated with this worsening of apnea or even the presence of apnea? And even if you didn't in your study, do, are, you, are you aware of any, um, you know, familial aggregation of things like sleep apnea or other sleep disorders? Um, the um, sleep heart health study is comprised of uh, several different cohort studies. Uh, which are located uh, across the United States. Um, one of them that I'm familiar with is the, uh, the Tucson Epidemiological Study of Airway Diseases, and this uh, particular cohort is uh, familiar because um, they, the subjects participating in the cohort um, subsequently got married, and then their children were also included in the uh, cohort. So it grew by um, family, adding family members. So, so that we do have uh, family, families in, in this study. Now, whether it is uh, um, excessive daytime sleepiness, if it's a, a familial uh, disease, uh, I'm, I'm really not sure, but... Um, I'll take your comments, Dr. Ross. Oh, you know, I, you know, like you, you know, there, there are some data on, on certain sleep. For example, sleep apnea has a, a clear f familial aggregation. There's also racial differences, so suggesting that there's genetic differences. But what the genetics are is, is not clear. In other words, it's it's very clear there's some familial heritability. But what is that? Is that for risk of obesity? Is it risk for, you know, sleep apnea per se? That is, a, you know, a, a less uh, you know, a more collapsible upper airway. So, yeah, there is a family history, and it, therefore it is it pays to get a family history, uh, especially with children and adults. But but what that genetic vulnerability is is not clear. There's also a family history now. Uh, there's familiar aggregation of narcolepsy. There's also familiar aggregation for insomnia. So I'm, I'm, 
like you, I have to plead some ignorance to us as Lexinum. I should know, but I think there is some. But very clearly, there is a clear risk factor in virtually all sleep disorders. But the, the, the bottom line is, yes, so family history is important, but in terms of pathophysiology, we don't really exactly know, in, at least in the case of apnea, what, what, what is the heterability of, of what? Is it weight? Is it craniofacial abnormalities? Is it collapsibility of the upper airway? Things like that. Next question, which I think is another interesting one, we sort of said that you know this quality of sleep is is, is in fact uh, related to both insomnia and daytime sleepiness, this quality of life and sleep quality. And, and the question that this listener has is, and you also mentioned that that people with insomnia, I mentioned that people with insomnia have increased death births. So can one treat sleepiness in, in patient patients who are sleepy due to narcolepsy or somebody who's sleepy due to insomnia the same way? Is that a reasonable thing to tr to treat their sleepiness with wake enhancing drugs? I I do think there are some um, medication mm -hmm. for um, for sleepiness, and uh, I'm again I'm not a clinician, so I I can't recommend or right. or make comments on this question. But um, I I I know that our uh, treatment with medication. So right. you know, to, just to add on that, you know, to to my knowledge, I know. Wake-enhancing medications, no stimulants, whether that's modafinil or traditional stimulants, which are indicated for the treatment of insomnia. <clears throat> there are some publications on that. You know, it's very important that, that you know, the use of, of modafinil and, and other wake-enhancing medications or stimulants are used when we cannot treat the underlying cause of it. So, for example, modafinil is indicated for sleep apnea only if CPAP doesn't work. So, again, you always want to get it if you have insomnia and daytime sleep because you want to treat the nocturnal sleep before you treat it. So, now, if, you, if treating the underlying condition doesn't change, then you may consider awake-enhancing medication. So, you know, these medications can be used in refractory sleepiness and apnea. They can be used in shift work sleep disorder even if they're sleeping well, you know, after they're sleeping well by day. So, so again, I think you always go to the underlying cause. And insomnia, the underlying cause is sleep disturbance. And I certainly would go for that before I would go after underlying, you know, before I would go into wake-enhancing medications. Another question becomes, is uh, which is a more general question, is how can you differentiate, and again, this isn't necessarily specific to this paper, restless leg syndrome from acesthesias in psychiatric patients who are do, taking psychotropic medications? Do you want to take that or you want me to take that? <laughs> I'll defer that to you. Doctor. Okay. Well, basically, the differences are twofold. One, patients with restless leg syndrome, the, 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 ur you know, the, the urge to move is, is one, more typical in the evening, it's circadian than it is during the day. That is not true for acesthesias. Two, which are which are which are reasonably important, is in fact um, that they're associated with inactivity. And finally, uh, they, they are relieved greatly by movement. So, so the, the circadian nature of these uncomfortable sensations and urge to move, the fact that they're worse with no movement and relieved by movement. Uh, those are, would be the major differentiating um, characteristics for me between an acesthesia and, and a restless leg syndrome. Also, you know, the whole issue of disturbed sleep and things like that also may differentiate them. So, so th those are those are the issues I would sort of think about uh, in, in terms of making those differentiations. Um, we're sort of running out of time here. Uh, we only have one minute left. I know we started late, so so I wanted to assure people that we will try to answer questions, but, but you know, before I sort of give you how do we can get to that, you know, I would like to thank Dr. Silver for joining us today. 
um, and especially for helping us translate this very, very important study she did into our clinical practice. How do we how do we deal with this fact that we have these people who have tremendously difficulty with sleep, both quality and quantity, that gets worse across time? How, how do we manage that? So I want to thank you, Dr. Silva. I want to thank the audience for joining us today. And if you're not able to get your question answered, please send an email to questions at cmeoutfitters.com. Dr. Silva and I will answer questions online over the next two weeks and post the answers at www.neurosciencecme.com slash, or, uh, you know, slash journal club. I'm Dr. Roth, and I'm th- I want to thank you for taking time for joining us today. I hope you will be able to incorporate the evidence that you heard today and the science that you heard today into your practice in terms of improving the, the quality of life of your patients. Have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.